Hello, and welcome to Suite 212, putting the arts in their social, cultural, political and historical context here on Resonance 104.4 FM, still London's best and brightest radio station after 20 years on the air. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today I'm talking to playwright and screenwriter Trevor Griffiths. Born in Manchester in 1935 of Irish and Welsh descent, Trevor worked as a teacher, liberal studies lecturer and further education officer for the BBC before becoming a full-time writer in 1970. He's been writing for the theatre, television and cinema since the late 1960s and his work has been seen throughout the world and won numerous awards, including the WGA Best Screenplay Award and an Oscar nomination for his screenplay for Warren Beatty's 1981 film Reds. His best-known stage play, Comedians, has been in constant production around the world since its premiere in 1975. His other works include the TV series Bill Brand, about a left-wing Labour MP, which was broadcast on ITV in the summer 1976, and the film's Country, from 1981, directed by Richard Eyre, and Fatherland, from 1986, directed by Ken Loach. More recently, his play A New World, about the philosopher, political theorist and revolutionary Thomas Paine, was staged at Shakespeare's Globe in 2009, and Country was included in the BBC's celebratory programming for the 50th anniversary of its influential Play for Today strand, for which Trevor wrote many times, and so was broadcast on BBC4 last year in 2020. Uh, So we'll be looking at a selection of these works today, um, having been writing and publishing and staging for so long we can't cover all of them but uh with all of that said trevor uh welcome to speak to one too it's good to be here yeah it's a real uh, real pleasure to have you um i first encountered your work as an a-level theatre studies student in the late 1990s uh when i was given uh, comedians to to read and uh, comedy and particularly stand-up comedy is a subject i'd long been interested in um, we'll return to that shortly, though. I want to, in the first section of the show, uh, discuss some of your theatrical work from the 1970s. And I'd like to start by talking about Occupations, which uh, was your first stage production in 1970, and then it toured in 1973 and was uh, produced by Granada for uh, for television in 1974. Um, so... Uh, this play, as I understand it, was written as a response to the failure of the um, radical or, or revolutionary activity in France in May 1968, mm. um, but uses the abortive socialist uprising in Italy in 1920 uh, as an analogue and, of course, implicitly the um, the coming of, of fascism mm. after that. Um, so it imagines a meeting between Christo Kabak, also known as Kabakchev, um, the Bulgarian representative of the Third International, uh, and of course the uh, Italian um, theorist and politician Antonio Gramsci, who I'm sure will be quite familiar to a lot of our listeners, um, who is editing a workers' paper advocating um, to the formation of Soviets in uh, in factories at the time, um, and this sort of explores the uh, the dilemma. The dilemmas around um, revolutionary activity uh, dealing with the um, the kind of ongoing problem for radical movements of um, how to build strategy and discipline and how necessary they are, uh, with the problem of needing to sort of take advantage of a revolutionary moment and act before you were kind of crushed by the um, by the authorities. Um, 
I'm really interested in um, in the difficulties of dramatizing these kinds of conflicts. So I wondered if you'd like to start us off by um, telling us a bit more about um, about occupations and how the, the characters of Kabak and Gramsci in particular come into conflict. I find that almost impossible to answer. I mean, I mean it's a deep question, but there's no deep answer to it. At least I haven't got one. Um, I became passionate about Gramsci's work um, maybe 10 years before I started writing anything about it. I didn't know about his life. Um, but there was something about what he wrote and the way he wrote it, even though I don't read Italian very well, I knew that this was something for me. This was something, this was part of my journey. Um, Kabakchov or Kabak is a different proposition. This is somebody I've dealt with in my head for a long time, somebody who's working to achieve revolutions wherever they are possible. And in, like a businessman, in a sense, he, he inspects the um, the uh, the workers, the people who are going to create the revolution. He talks about them with potential leaders. He evaluates the leadership qualities of people. Um, so he's like a tool of revolution, but he's also a promoter of it. So it's an interesting thing. And and he has, in the same room as he's talking with Gramsci, he has his wife, his lover, his loved one uh, dying. Now, that might may be a bit over the top for <laughs> certain purists, but um, it seemed to me at the time that I was writing it, uh, a way of saying more than revolution is this, life is this, and all the rest of it, you know. I didn't know, I was finding my way. Um, and so I see occupation, an early play, but not the first play I'd written, but a play that kind of delivered something, some meanings, difficult though they may be, um, that I was happy to, to see released with my name on them. Uh, and in a sense, occupations are stuck. It, whenever any new scholar comes to me with, uh, new to me, I mean, with a notion of, Whatever I do, whatever I wherever I start, you know, occupations is planted right in the middle. There's no way of avoiding that, and it's not a perfect play, for God's sake. What is? But this certainly isn't. Um, but it's a play that has some excitement to 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 deliver, if you can get at it, and. Getting at plays is very difficult, I think. The further they recede into uh, a known history, 
ultimately an unknown history, um, the more difficult it is to, to make sense of them totally in terms of your life lived, being lived, and about to be lived. Yeah, um, I mean, I think what really struck me about um, Occupations on first reading it uh, was was how directly it dramatizes these, um, you know, these these long term uh, questions for revolutionary movements. Um, I think the play quite successfully avoids didacticism, though. I reading it, I I I couldn't identify. I, you know, I, I didn't feel I was being told whether I should sympathise with Kabak or Gramsci or whether I should be looking to find some synthesis between their um, their opposing um, positions. Um, but I wondered if you could maybe talk a bit more about um, what the challenges were for you in dramatising this sort of direct political conflict. And maybe uh, if you remember some, some of the critical responses to the play and whether they, they felt this approach was effective or not. I can't, honestly, I can't remember critical approaches. That's a long way away, you know. Mm. Though, I spend very little time in printed criticism of my work. It's, it's not a place I need to be. You know, one reading of most of the reviews is sufficient. I, I know enough to know that I don't need to read it again. Some of them I read quite frequently. <laughs> But I don't know what which ones they are, and maybe the frequency is a bit of an illusion, a delusion of me. But there are reviewers and critics, because there are four books about me, and I have to read them. And I spend a lot of time with the people who write those books. So what I say is what I mean, rather than what they mean, they think I mean, I think, anyway. Yeah, I mean, maybe um, we could just talk a little more about, um, you know, how you found your own model for uh, writing about revolutionary politics in this way. I mean, you know, you could... You could look at certain models for dramatizing revolutionary conflict. I mean, Bertolt Brecht would be one, mm. I think. Mm. Uh, the German expressionist playwright Ernst Toller yeah. uh, would be another very interesting one. And going back further, another German playwright, uh, Georg Buchner, with his play about um, the death of Danton uh, during the French revolutionary terror. Uh, but it doesn't feel to me like, like your plays sit very easily within any of those models. No, no I agree. I agree. And I admire the work you just uh, you raised. Um, but that's stuff that is golden and has to be respected, not because it's worth anything, but because it's gold. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting I'm getting moaned now. <laughs> That's usually a sign that I'm getting defensive. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
maybe maybe then that's a good place to um to talk about um comedians yeah. uh which which as i said is um is was my introduction to your work and it's a play that i've uh, i've long admired and indeed um wrote about recently for uh, for tribune mm. um comedians i think is um is in the same breath i think quite a universal play uh, hence it continuing to be uh, performed now but also very located in a particular um cultural time and and place i mean it was written as a response to um to the itv program uh that went out uh, in the early 70s with comedians like bird of manning who were of course you know even at the time uh, let alone now notorious for um you know bringing fairly reactionary uh, opinions into their comedy um and so so your your play comedians is set in an adult education center in manchester uh where a 70 year old uh, former comic called eddie waters is teaching six working class men how to do stand up um so what you're seeing really is the process behind what ends up coming to you as a television viewer mm. Um, so Waters clashes with a with a local promoter called Bert Challoner mm. uh, because Waters really believes that comedy should tell these these hard hitting truths about people and what they want, mm. uh, whereas Challoner very much insists that you know we're servants, the audience demand and we reply. So you're kind of dramatizing this this age old mm. um, conflict in art and commerce. Um, but you see Waters clash with the students as well, uh, mm. and some of them side with Challoner and they're rewarded for that. Um, and some of them clash with Waters because they prize sort of self-expression above Waters's um, more sort of politicized attitudes to to comedy. Um, so maybe we could we could just talk a little bit more about um, about what led you to write comedians, why that subject interested you so much. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what drew me into comedians. I'm glad that I went, because, but it, I, I was scared of it. Uh, and I'm frequently scared of projects that I see. Uh, and some of them lie bleeding still from the awful separation. But uh, comedians? I went to see comedians. I listened to comedians on radio and eventually on television. Um, I never read comedians. It, it, that wasn't part of the knowledge store for anybody growing up in the 60s or 50s or 70s. But I met a lot of them. I met them at shows, as it were, in working men's clubs. Uh, and I was an habitué of several Manchester working men's clubs and labour clubs. And um, nobody thought it was important what the comedian was doing. It, there was never any feeling that the comedian was leading things. It was the audience that was leading things. And that was, tantalizing it was it was strange it, i hadn't been to a theater as it were where the audience was leading the players and 
So there was something unique about that for me. And it was just another example of a way in which people who feed the working classes cultural material misunderstand what is actually going on. People are not stupid. People are not daft. People are bloody smart. That's my view anyway. And and now, you know, you take them on at your peril. Now, I take them on from time to time. And usually I come out bleeding, scratched, an eye hanging out, a nose distorted, because it's a tough game. It's, it's a tough game, but it, you, you have to go there, I think. I think, well, I had to go there. Yeah. But I'm I mean, cheeky. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Look, what I, what I really love about comedians, I think, above all else, um, is, the, um, is the famous uh, comic showcase that is played out more or less in real time. Mm. in the working men's club mm. um and you see this sort of amazing different range of approaches to comedy mm. um you see a, a double act that basically mm. implodes on stage because one mm. of the characters doesn't want to tell a racist joke and basically forces the other character to tell it uh you see one one character <laughs> quite bravely um playing with audience expectations mm. around um i think his irish background mm before realising it's not really landing and just kind of going back to the safety of, um, mm. of kind of laughing at minorities. Um, and ultimately you see uh, one of the central characters in the play, Gethin, mm. um, produce this uh, really um, quite uh, at times terrifying uh, mm. performance that really kind of threatens the audience and threatens the fellow comics and of course mm. threatens um, Chaloner, the um, the producer um, mm. that really feels like it kind of predates the alternative comedy movement of the 1980s um, by by being kind of quite close to performance art. But I think what's sort of um, what's really interesting about that set piece in comedians is how it sort of invites the audience to laugh and then essentially punishes them for it. Yeah. Um, and I wondered. Um, I wondered if you would like to sort of say anything more about that or, or maybe some of, again, some of the reactions from, from audiences that Comedians has provoked. I don't know. I don't <laughs> know whether, whether I do want to say something about the audience. I mean, Comedians is what it is. It's a play. It's It's... It's the most play play that I've written. Yeah. Um, it's all play, you know, it's not like play pretending to be life or something. It's, it's, it's all in the play. And we know that it's a play and we know that when the play is over, there'll be another play, not necessarily my play. And Frequently now, when I see a, a comedians 20, 40 years later, I see a play that isn't really my play at all. It, it's totally transformed by the newness that is represented by the audience. People who don't know the play, people who are staggered, surprised, appalled, whatever it is, there are new 
reactions available, audience reactions available to this play. And there will be people who've read it three times and, and studied it and know it, as it were, or feel they know it, and then see it in a production which transcends every understanding or most of the understandings they had of the play. In that sense, it's probably a good play <laughs> rather than <laughs> an also rad. You know, it's, it's one that will keep running for a bit and that's interesting in itself. And I go back to the, uh, sorry, I was about to swear, but uh, I go back to it occasionally, uh, usually on the page rather than on the screen, but I have it on the screen to see what I was doing and remembering stuff that I've totally forgotten about, which is exciting and dangerous. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I'm no longer in control. And that is a real important message for anybody who's writing. Don't imagine that you control the play that you, you've written and that people have applauded or thrown away or whatever. Oh God, what am I talking about? I think no, I'm no, thinking I'm talking about, you know, the kind of soldiering that's required. The, you know, the fighting that's required to keep a play active or mm. to keep a play meaningful, um, more centered in the condition of being alive today in British speaking, English speaking audiences. Mm. I can't control Italy and France and Germany and the other places that do it from time to time. And when I talk with people who speak and grew up in those languages, they say, oh, that's crap. <laughs> well, this is, what, this is what interests me about comedians, I guess. Well, well, I'll have to move the conversation on now. But just to wrap up, you know, Comedians was uh, first performed in, in 1975 and, and all of those ITV comedians who it was reacting against, I think, have, have you know, long been blown away by this, uh, this alternative comedy that I talked about. And um, we don't have time, unfortunately, to go deeply into the contemporary comedy um, industry, but anyone who follows my work closely will know that I have uh, some opinions on that that have annoyed some contemporary comedians um, by suggesting that maybe they, uh, they became the establishment more than, uh, more than they realised. But we'll mm. um we'll have to park that unfortunately mm. um because I want to move on to um some of your work uh that was written for for television rather mm. than uh mm. as with occupations and comedians being written for the stage and then produced in the seventies sure. um and I'd really like to I mean I just said that comedians uh you know really kind of remains relevant um another um work of yours uh that I think has um really uh, acquired um, particular relevance in the last five or six years due to um, political developments in Britain uh, was the series Bill Brand that you, um, you wrote for, for Thames Television, which was broadcast on, on ITV in uh, summer 1976. Um, and to me, from, from you know, this vantage point of the 2010s going into the 2020s, it seems pretty extraordinary to me that, you know, you managed to get uh, 
an 11 part series. I think it was intended to be 13 parts, but still an 11 part series um, of, of 50 minute episodes uh, broadcast in a prime time slot uh, on, on ITV, probably the most commercially minded of, um, of the stations that were um, available at the time. That you managed to get this written and produced um, because it seems to me now that um, producing uh, such a series dealing with sort of factual issues um, in the Labour Party um, in a way, you know, sort of looked at through the vantage point of a, of a radical, quite young left-wing Labour MP with a quite slim majority. Mm. It seems pretty amazing to me that you managed to get that produced. Um, I know well, that you well, had to well, fight for that 9pm slot, didn't you? Absolutely. But I had to fight for the whole project. Yeah. But I had the most superb independent producer, Stella Richmond. And it was, I think, I'm right. And Stuart Burge, I think. Um, these are old timers, you know, old time lefties. lefties. And they were still active and they were still powerful. They were brilliant. Um, and I never met anybody in theatre at that level of producer, producer-director, who warmed to the stuff that I wanted to write. So it was, it was quite difficult. I, I can imagine. I mean, if you can sort of remember, um, can we talk a bit more about maybe what institutional barriers there were to getting the, the show made and getting it made as you conceived it? Those are two difficult questions. The, the second one, um, I've never had anything produced the way I wanted it. Mm. Uh, I mean, that, that's the truth, you know. There are requirements that are presented to you about money, about casting, which is also about money, um, that, that drove me crazy. I mean, you know, I'm not a businessman. I'm not, I, I have, you know, I have to make grave use of my age in a lot of productions. Uh, which I love doing, you know, and so does he. <laughs> uh, I don't know why I'm telling you this, because it's all secret. <laughs> That's what we like to get out of our guests, is yes, the secrets. It's never, it's never <laughs> been shared. <laughs> um, but I'm at a position now in my life, you know, 86 years of age, that I feel I can say things that are true rather than, you know, grazing past the truth as we come into some convenient fiction. You know, the fiction is the playwriting. <laughs> Everything else is politics. <laughs> I mean, it, it also feels pretty incredible to me that, um, you know, at its peak, uh, Bill Brand attracted uh, 11 million viewers. Yeah, um, that is amazing. And again, it feels it feels hard to imagine that now. And maybe mm. it's something to do with the specific broadcast climate of the, mm. 
the mm. mid-1970s and, mm. and, you know, maybe the relative strength at the time of the um, sort of labour movement and the working class movement and its associated culture. Mm. Um, so in watching, watching the show now, um, of course, the parallels with, um, with Jeremy Corbyn's labour and the position of the left within the Labour Party um, over the last kind of five to ten years, um, you know, the, the show feels very prescient in anticipating the, um, the difficulties that uh, the left faced in, in running the Labour Party and not just the difficulties that come from the right with, um, you know, with opposition from the, uh, the Conservatives. Um, I mean, the play is actually set at a time when, when Labour are in, in power, mm -hmm. albeit very precariously in the mid-1970s with a, mm. a tiny majority. Um, uh, but, you know, as well as um, looking at the challenges that Bill Brand faces with being misrepresented by right-wing media, mm -hmm. uh, which are many, um, mm. you know, he also uh, comes into conflict with the Labour Party whips, with his local Labour Party, yeah. with his election agent, uh, with the uh, the Parliamentary Labour Party, nearly all of whom are to the right of him, mm. um, but it also very effectively um, dramatises some of his conflicts with um, trade union leaders yeah. uh, and with with the other left wing MPs within the Labour Party. Mm -hmm. um, I don't I don't quite know what uh, what sort of question I'm trying to form out of that. Really, I mean, I'm just trying to give a summary of the. Um, the play uh, of the uh, of the series to um, to our listeners um, mm. who may not all have uh, have seen it, um, but I wonder. I mean, you've you know you you've often looked at um, the kind of importance of understanding history to radical movements, yeah. uh, and I wondered how much you were you were drawing on the histories of um, of radical uh, left wing labour politicians and the limits mm. they came up against in the labour movement. There were two or three Labour MPs, Northern Labour MPs. I can't remember their names. I can't remember the seats that they took and held. But I remember meetings with them, talks that talked about television and political dramas of some sort. And I think on the whole, they got as much out of my plays as I got out of them. Yeah. <laughs> because I put them in a goldfish bowl and they had to swim around it and, and be. And it, it, it was a cunning device on my part to get more and more information about what it actually feels like to be a Labour MP. Uh, in 1974 or whatever it is uh, and they were great and they talked and talked and talked. I don't have any tapes of them because I, I could then depend on a brain that was really active and full of life. Uh, at 86 I promise you <laughs> I can't do that anymore. I really can't. There's no reliance on a tricky brain, you know. 
I mean, I guess I guess I was brought to mind of not just um, figures who would have been contemporary in the 1970s, but going right back to the origins of the Labour movement. I mean, in, in Bill Brand, in particular, him being mm. so young, mm. I was brought to mind of people like um, Victor Grayson, who mm. was, um, well, he ended up standing and winning as an independent socialist in mm. Cone Valley in Yorkshire in 1907. Um, Brilliant. And yeah, I mean, he's a really fascinating figure. I'm actually writing something about him at the really? moment. There's also a Are new you uh, play. Uh, yeah, I'm writing writing a screenplay on him, and we'll we'll oh, see really? if um, really if I can uh, match your success in getting Bill Brand produced in the contemporary <laughs> climate. We'll, uh, well we'll see how it goes. But um, <laughs> you know, I, I was brought to mind someone like Grayson and the um, the conflicts he had with. Um, with Labour leaders like um, Keir Hardy and mm. Philip Snowden and Ramsay MacDonald mm. from the very off. Mm. It seems to me that, um, you know, what makes Bill Brand so interesting is how it draws on that really rich Labour history, which at that point went back probably 80 years or so. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, what's, what's also interesting about Bill Brand is um, not just how it looks back at the past, but how it anticipates a bit like comedians really anticipates the next decade or so mm. because Bill Brand, he, um, he represents a fictional greater Manchester constituency called Lely. Mm. Um, and one thing he's very concerned about is trying to save uh, the textile industry yeah. is the um, backbone of, um, of Lely's economy. Um, so there's a sense of coming the industrialization and a lot of mm. drama um, in, in the series uh, comes from his relationships with trade union leaders, um, in particular um, and about workers, by the yeah. Way. I mean, there's a big scene where he goes out to this shed, this massive shed, and talks with with the constituents, and that's one of my favourite scenes in in Bill Brown. Incidentally, I do like Bill Brown. I mean it. You know, a lot of my work when it's finished and done, uh, I can say, "Oh Jesus, what earth is this?" <laughs> but, but Bill Brand is 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 a strong contender for the being the one play or set of plays that I got through almost unscathed, almost. And that's, you know, I mean, it may, may sound a small thing, but it's it's big. No, it's huge. It's um, big. I mean, it's really big. one episode that really struck me um, for the, I guess, just the achievement in getting this subject matter covered in a drama mm. and getting sort of producers to take this subject matter seriously is I think the sixth episode, which is set at the Labour Party conference. Mm. And mm. a lot of the drama in uh, in the episode is Brand working with other um, more left-leaning Labour MPs to get a motion through conference. Mm. Um, and, you know, for, for a drama to take something like the Labour Party conference as seriously as Bill Brand does, mm. I think is really interesting. But what that episode also does, um, and, you know, you may say it's a, a slightly Brexian device, but it, it, you know, it actually really shows you the, um, the process of, of, television covering the conference and it shows you the tv studios mm -hmm. um and you know that kind of um constant reminding of the audience they are watching a tv series they're watching mm -hmm. 
a fictionalization of something that's happening now, mm. uh, I think is really interesting. Mm. Um, can we talk a bit about why um, why you why you use that technique? Why you kind of brought the nature of the television coverage itself into the series? Insofar as I manage that, it is an uphill battle. But what people understand about politics is largely, not wholly, but largely down to what they understand about television. And I mean, telly is a, an uncompromising beast. It, it, can, it can eat you. It can, you know, just a small repast, 10, 11 episodes of a, you know, almost forgotten series. I mean, that's not gonna damage them in important, necessary ways. So, in a, in a sense, if you go into the battle thinking, I can win this, you're deluding yourself. You can come out with a draw. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes a goalless draw. <laughs> but it's very difficult to say, ha, I've got that. I've nailed that. Not only have I nailed it, but so has the audience. Now they can go away and use it in some other space, in some other time. Uh, that'd be nice. And it doesn't happen very often. That's all I say. Mm. And I wonder, I mean, obviously, as I said, Bill Brand anticipates the sort of deindustrialization of the, the following decade. But obviously something that also happened over the following decades was the deregulation of, um, of British media, the arrival of cable and satellite, mm -hmm. and the sort of, you know, giving over of television much more to the market. And I think the kind of gradual erosions of these sort of post-war traditions of, of cultural democracy that your work, I think, was very much a product of and sure. in dialogue with. Um, I mean, just, just something, I'm intrigued to hear what you think about this, because watching Bill Brand, I was really struck by thinking about the difference between a program that's made primarily for domestic consumption, which I think Bill Brand you know, was largely mm -hmm. aimed at the British market, and a program that's made for sort of international consumption and what that does to, to narratives. I mean, um, the reason I say this is because I think, you know, for me, and a lot of my friends, people who've been, you know, quite involved with um, or quite interested in the nature of the Labour Party in particular and the role it takes in British politics and particularly the left of British politics. This is a particularly interesting story, but, um, you know, a lot of my, my friends from other countries, even those on the left, uh, you know, when they, they look at sort of British narratives on screen they're looking at things like the crown which of course are dealing with uh with with you know these sort of narratives that maybe are seen as being sort of britain for an international audience mm -hmm. um does that does that make sense is that a meaningful distinction to draw is that an interesting thing to think about 
I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know, Julia. <laughs> not, not, uh, not alone in those things that I don't understand or don't know. Mm. But um, I, I had a chance. Now I don't know whether this fits in or not. But I had a chance to write some more Bill Browns, and I turned it down. I'm not sure why I turned it down. But it would be, I mean, I don't think of Bill Brand differently from Occupations, for example, which started in the theatre, went to television, and then died. <laughs> not died, but it's still read by A-level students in spaces around the country and possibly even some of them Germany, France, around the world. But I I very frequently lose contact with plays I've written. My the authority inside me, inside this brain of mine, wants to go on, wants to do other other work and not follow in the footsteps of my own work <laughs> and uh, i don't know i'm thinking of what the hell was it finally called scott scott and amundsen that do you know that piece i mean it's six, i think six hours of concentrated storytelling about the battle for the South Pole. Yeah. Now, inside that, buried possibly, or not, not fronted, it's not fronted, but inside that is an ocean of empire, an ocean of people who are not an empire, not part of an empire, and not thinking about it. That's the Norwegians. Um, and that's one of my favorite pieces. I watch it every two years, every three years, through, right the way through. It's, it's dense. It's a dense vehicle for a lot of ideas. <coughs> Um, and it's still being played in, in in Norway, but it isn't being played in Britain, and that's interesting. Mm. That's interesting because the Norwegians have fifty percent of that play at least. Um, now I don't want to go any further with this because yeah. I'm not primed for it, but. That's a piece that I love. I love the music. I love the the, the settings. The I love the cast. It, it's it's a special thing. And um, also, I think I think it's for any six former doing English. Or international politics, or history, politics. 
that's it's a strong contender, you know, for a teacher to say, let's have a look at this for a couple of minutes. And every time I watch it, which isn't a huge number of times, but every time I watch it, I feel, wow, this is good. This is really good. What am I worried about? And I was worried sick because there was no mm. Labour Party and stole this <laughs> and stole that. But boy, did it say something about the British then and now. And I'm proud of it. And there will be one in a hundred who get it. And that's fine. That's a good number. <laughs> It is. Um, if we're talking about millions watching. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think we, uh, we've got about 15 minutes left now. So I'd like to just move the conversation on to a couple of, um, of more recent works. I don't mm. want to just talk about works you did um, in, the, in the 1970s. Um, so I'd like to spend a few minutes first talking about um, uh, a work you did for the BBC in 1997 um, called Food for Raven which covered the, the last six months of, uh, of the NHS founder and post-war Labour MP Nye Bevan's life. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm going to quote from uh, Mark Carlin, who was writing for Vertigo magazine in 1998, talking about how it focuses on the last days of Nye Bevan, who was ill and dying, and refusing the good and noble death, uh, grasping at any future, however illusory, He's confronted by a boy who he sees first as an angel of death. Questioned and haunted by this child, we begin to understand that it is Bevan's childhood that's confronting him. And mm. halfway through the film, we see that it's a child anticipating the future man, the Bevan who died as a boy. Uh, so between various hospital visits, we see Bevan walking in the woods, sitting by lakes, resting mm. by a tree, and constantly uh, pilling his abdominal pain. Uh, Carlin writes, we see him testing, interrogating, remaking his past, conversing with his childhood and the child in turn arguing with the man. Um, so this doesn't sound to me like a, um, a traditional political biopic. Um, and, you know, you, you've said, um, talking about uh, Food for Ravens, you, you've said before that you wanted to explore this idea of the past always being with us. Mm. So can I ask a bit about how that's reflected in the nonlinear structure um, and maybe whether that made it more difficult to get the film made and broadcast. Well, explain why it's more difficult to get that structure. Um, I mean, I, I wonder if... Um, From that structure. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if, um, you know, if television executives, you know, look at look at a sort of non-linear approach to, to narrative and, and just think maybe this will be too difficult for audiences. Um, I mean, I know that, um, you know, the BBC were accused of trying to hide the film by showing it quite late on a Sunday night. Um, and I think it was a struggle to get it broadcast at all, right? Yes. So what's your question? <laughs> I'm not quite sure. I've just sort of thrown... <laughs> thrown lots of thoughts. I mean, I guess I want to ask like why, why you structured the play in the way that you did first. It's the only way I could. Mm. It's, it's, I love the structure of Food for Ravens uh, and, I, and I think it is successful. 
but you might have to watch it twice. And that is, a, is probably a new concept to millions of people who were the audience for that piece. Um, I think it's possibly my best television piece. I want to mention Brian Cox because he was magnificent, not just in the role, but in the production. He just was so committed to doing it the way it was, not the way it could be or the way it might have been or, uh, you know, and so it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's a play that doesn't make apologies for its form. And, I, and I, the form for me, the form for me is as good as anything I've devised for a, for a screen. That's how I feel about it. And yes, there may be a few gaffes and a few nonsenses, but with all of those, it's still a piece that I, and I don't use this word often, that I love. <laughs> uh, I don't know what else to say of them. I'm, I'm proud of it. I love it. Well, I, I think we can we can leave uh, Food to Raven there, actually, because I want to spend the last um, sort of just under 10 minutes of the show uh, talking about um, a real epic uh, work of yours, um, which is uh, the play A New World, mm. uh, which was staged at Shakespeare's Globe in 2009. Um, I wasn't living in London at the time and sadly mm. didn't have a chance to, um, to see it, but... Um, the screenplay was published as These Are the Times in 2005. Mm. Uh, and it was also um, produced for BBC Radio. Yes, um, absolutely. A brilliant production, by the way. I but, listened um, to it recently, and by God, it's, it's really, really good. And I had nothing to do with that, except that the producer, um, Anne Scott, uh, married to Jack Shepard, uh, is one of the best ever and she she made a job she really made it and i was doubtful that it would work for radio but i love it i love it um, sorry that's no bit, no that's that's fine no it's um it's self-explanatory to, uh, to hear that <laughs> but um yeah, I should mention for listeners, I'm not sure we've actually mentioned uh, Jack Shepard's name yet, but of course he is the uh, the star of Bill Brand and your television play, uh, All Good Men from 1974. Um, but uh, just to bring us back to uh, to a new world. Um, yeah. So this is a play about the, um, the British-born, American-based radical uh, Thomas Paine, yeah. uh, which was commissioned for a film by uh, Richard Attenborough. Uh, in 1988, but mm. not produced at the time. Um, and it follows Payne from his uh, arrival in America in 1774 to mm. his funeral in New York City in 1809 um, and his participation or his proximity to, to the two, you know, huge revolutions of the late 18th century in America century. in yeah. 1776 and France in 1789. Mm. Um, I mean, a lot of, a lot of your political plays dealt with the um, 20th century. Mm. Um, so could we maybe just, just talk a bit about what, what moved you to write um, 
such an epic piece about Thomas Paine. The idea was brought by, brought to me by uh, Richard Attenborough, <coughs> who is usually thought of as not particularly intellectual in his approach to drama. I think he had what it was what was needed for this, and I. I'd avoided Tom Paine as a piece of my possible history for a long time. And when, it, when he rang me up and said, I want to work with you, I want, and I, I'd love to do something about Thomas Paine, I thought, Jesus Christ, where is this coming from? Somebody knows about Tom Paine and wants to do something about it. As luminous as as uh, Dickey. So I spent a year and a half with Dickey working on this. And I, I, I call it this because I don't really know what it is. It's a play, but it's more than a play. And um, I'm very proud of that piece. Uh, I mean, it, it has problems. It has problems of production more than anything. It's just a monster. But uh, I think we did it well enough for it to live. That's, that's about all I can say about that thing. But I love it. I'm sorry, I'm loving a lot of my work. <laughs> it sounds a bit dangerous. That's <laughs> okay. I mean, you know, I... Sounds as if I'm cornered. But look, I mean... I, I, I feel the same, you know, within my own uh, body of, of, of work, of writing mm. essays and short mm. fiction and making mm. short films. Mm. You know, there, there are some works that I would genuinely say I love. And I think mm. if, you, if you are not producing the work that you love and saying mm. the things that you really, really feel moved to say and need to say, then, then what's the point of making art? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um. Yes, I mean, just we, we've only got a few minutes left, but just to mm -hmm. talk a little more about um, about a new world. Um, I mean, I think I think what 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 sounds to me most interesting about the um, the piece is um, is is you know how it deals with sort of conservative forces within the American independence movement who mm -hmm. sought to limit the potential of the revolution. Mm -hmm. um, and in that respect, there's a thematic link that runs yeah. all the way through your works right yeah. this yeah. um this interest in what the limits of political possibility are and you know what the leftmost ideas and movements are that can be incorporated within a system and how yeah. they work to to keep things to their left out is that a fair yeah. assessment of yeah. yeah of this play and and maybe of yeah. themes in your work as a whole mm -hmm. yeah i think so um yeah, I mean, you know, Payne, Payne in that respect is a very interesting figure because he he ends up being disappointed with the American movement. He comes back to England, he's exiled, he goes to France and he publishes The Rights of Man, of course, very influential okay. text. Um, and he's disappointed again when the French Revolution, you know, collapses into dictatorship and, and mass killing. And mm. after he's imprisoned, he's released and eventually returns to America. Mm. Um, what, what was it about Payne that you felt sort of made him you know a relevant figure 
um, to the early 21st century as well as to the 18th? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, quite frequently you pluck something from history, a history you know and prob probably your audience doesn't. And you say, you, I don't know, you work it out. You work it out. You say, hang on, if this happened, then surely that happened. And if that happened, then these things happened. And gradually you build a plan for a play. As I take my eyes from the screen and look at, at oh God, I wish I had a picture of it. But I have a wall in my den, which is just full of outlines and images of work. And it's all about how, how to get there. So I got these sheets, sheet after sheet after sheet after sheet. New World, Danton, they're all there. And, well, they're not all there, but there are a lot of them there. And that's the way I struggle my way to a play. Um, and some of them help a lot, and some of them debar me from going further, so I stop. But it's a weird world to live in. And I live in this, I've lived in this room for 20 years at the least, at the most, at the least. Um, and stuff goes up, new stuff goes up and all stuff comes down or gets moved. But ultimately, this is a workroom. And in this workroom, I do work. Uh, and I don't need to work in that crude, awful, true sense of needing the money to subsist. But I, but I do the work because I need to do the work. And I need to utter it. And I need to note the reactions of those who are not uttering it, but receiving it. And little by little, you get closer to meaning and that's what we're all after meaning absolutely and um i think that's a beautiful place to uh, to conclude actually so pretty much out of time um mm. so trevor thank you so so much for uh, for joining me today and you know sharing sharing your thoughts on half a century or more of uh, of writing for stage and screen thank you so much thank you for asking the questions absolute pleasure as uh, as always um listeners i've been your host juliet jakes here on resonance 104.4 fm um you can find us on twitter at sweet underscore 212 find us on soundcloud sweet dash 212 and itunes and we'll be back at the same time in the same place next month mm -hmm. take care goodbye